you are listening to Impact Hustlers, and I am your host, Michael Schaffrath. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself, by joining the team of one, or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Roberto Milk, the CEO and co-founder of Novica, one of the world's biggest marketplaces for artisans from all over the world to sell their handmade products. With most artisans based in developing countries, Novica has actually sold more than a hundred million worth of artisan products on its platform. That's quite a number um, if I look at any platforms in that space. And Novica is really not a startup anymore. I think uh, we can agree on that, um, but has a really interesting journey. You started in 1999. Um, uh, uh, I think there's a lot of big companies that haven't been around at that time. You know, like Google was a small startup. Uh, Facebook wasn't around. Amazon was around for a few years, but wasn't close to what they're doing. So like you were really quite um, kind of early in looking at commerce and how it can change lives uh, and people. Um, and it's really great to have you on the show, Roberto. Um, and thanks for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. And I was just saying, I, I, I love, I love your, the impact hustlers name. It's so great. I guess, uh, going to 1999, that makes me an OG impact hustler. <laughs> we, we really do date back, but you know, it's been, it's been quite a journey and we've, survived various financial downturns in the uh, markets and everything. And we're, we're alive and thriving and making a huge impact in the lives of artisans. So, so happy to be here. So happy to share the story. I love that. Yeah. I was uh, just recording an episode with Jessica Jackley, the co-founder of Kiva.org. And um, uh, uh, she's now um, launching a new business called Altruists. And I was already speaking with her, like she was part of an early wave of social entrepreneurs with Kiva. They started in 2005. So you're like way early. <laughs> you're like really yeah. like the pioneers that yeah. kind of even kind of uh, built the baseline for stuff. So that, that's, that's, that's true. Uh, they, 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 they survived the one less dot com crash than we did. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's crazy. I remember when Kiva launched in 2005, I guess around 2005. Mm -hmm. And um, I love, I love what they've done. And we've partnered with them over the years and they're just fantastic. And Jessica's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Let's talk about your journey, uh, your entrepreneur journey and how everything started with Novica. So take us back to the year 1999. What situation were you personally in, in terms of what were you doing in your life? And then why did you decide to launch Novica? And uh, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Oh, you know what? I actually have to take you back even further. Okay. Is that okay? There we go. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go back. Up. So it's in 1995. Okay. Mm. So I was a senior at Stanford, not sure what I was going to do. Um, looking at law school, just kind of just, I loved my time there and I was like, what's next? And, um, and then this idea came and my girlfriend, um, who later became my wife, but my girlfriend, 
I shared this idea um, that came um, actually out of a Portuguese uh, class that I was taking. So I, cause she's Brazilian and I was trying to learn Portuguese. <laughs> and so I, I took this class and the teachers from Brazil and saying, you know what, there's gotta be a better way for artisans in places like Brazil to reach the market. Because you know what, I saw some Brazilian handcrafted goods in San Francisco last weekend and they were so expensive. And I know those artisans weren't getting hardly any of that retail price. And so it kind of like, it was like a light bulb moment. And there's a, a deeper part of that story. Um, but really, that's when it, it like all came together. And I talked to my girlfriend. She's like, you have to talk to my mom. I'm like, talk to your mom. I'm not sure about it. She's like, yeah, she's with the United Nations. And uh, she's she was a, a, an officer with the UN. She had just actually um, been uh, negotiating the peace accords in El Salvador. And so she said, you got to talk to her and, and tell her about this idea. And so I very nervously called her up. And uh, she said, you know what? I like this so much that if you guys actually raise money for it, I'll leave my job with the UN and join you guys. And I said, wow, oh my God, this is for real. I'm a college senior and I'm recruiting my girlfriend's mom uh, to join us. And she was really into it. And, um, and then so it became, there was a whole group of us there that we discussed it and we said, let's do this. And then we all incubated it for four years. And I went into investment banking uh, to basically learn how to raise money and get skills. And um, and I did that. And then in 1999, it was the right time. And we raised the seed around from a lot of the folks that I knew in investment banking, uh, including Michael Burns, who became our chairman. He was the head of our West Coast office and fantastic. And um, and so then we got it going in 99. And it was off to the races from there, really figuring out a whole new way for artisans uh, to reach the world market. Yeah. So was it kind of... Uh typical dot-com uh, kind of startup at that stage where you were like, okay, fully online, we need to provide like some sort of e-commerce angle on this. Was that straight away the idea or did it change over the years? Oh, no, that was the idea. Not only was that the idea, but, you know, we wanted to be, um, um, uh, we wanted to have offices where the artisans were. And mm -hmm. so we opened offices in Peru, um, my, my, uh, my mother's home country, where I had spent a lot of time we have, and I had lots of family there. So they, they started the, the office out of, out of my cousin's garage and uh, my buddy, my roommate from Stanford, his, his uh, grandmother's garage in Mexico and um, our family in Brazil and a friend of mine in Ghana. And we started the offices there and it was all, it was virtual from the very beginning in terms of um, setting up a, an online system for the artisans. And so many industry experts said, this is never going to work. This is never going to work. You have to bring in items and containers and send buyers. Why have these offices? And we heard so many negative comments early on from industry experts, um, really trying to just discourage us from doing what we were doing. But, um, you know, we were young and stupid and we just did it. And it was great. It was the best thing ever, you know, not listening to the so-called industry experts. And, um, and so we, we made it happen, basically, um, servicing artisans in very remote um, areas um, and getting their items online and, and shipping items from all around the world to customers. Mm. Uh, Let, let's zoom in on that, right? Like if you look at digital first uh, startups, obviously having a lot of kind of infrastructure is always a little bit of a thing that investors don't really like if it's not really necessary, right? Like that's probably why a lot of people were saying like, why are you opening these offices? Let's just focus online, you know, stay yeah. in the US, like just do that, right? Um, but like, let's zoom in on that issue. What did it actually help you achieve by 
being in those markets, opening up offices, how did that unlock some opportunities for Novica um, going forward? Well, you know, I think it's because it was like 100% authentic from the very beginning. So we were mission driven. And that goes back to just um, the way I was raised. My, my, my parents were both teachers and we would take these extended summer um, vacations where we would just drive around different parts of the world, Peru, Mexico, you know, wherever we were going. And, um, and my brother and I became really fond of collecting artisan crafts. And then as we traveled, we would see just growing up how artisans really had a really hard time, you know, selling and, and making a living, um, even though they were super talented. And to me, it always struck me. I'm like, how can such talented artisans, you know, be struggle struggling, you know, to, to earn a living and peddling items in the streets. And, and it's just a really tough life. And, um, and a lot of the crafts were disappearing because there was no money in them and, and people couldn't hand them down to the generations. It was like, they were just disappearing and that's happening right now. And so we're really trying to reverse that, but thinking about it that way, we thought, look, this is not a system that we want to build for like big companies. Like we want to, we don't want to work with some big company that already has some, like they're up on email and they're going to be communicating with us and sending us items into a warehouse in the U S or drop shipping or, you know, like that's not who we want to work with. Like there's other, there's other companies for that. We want to work with that individual artist that we see when we're like hiking the Inca trail in Peru. And we see this talented artist, like that's the artist we want to work with that one, you know, and how do we get, how do we like change it up for them to completely, you know, um, have them be successful, you know, through their, through their work. And so we had to be, we had to have the physical offices. And in order to do that, we really had to sell the dream too. So we was like, we were thinking big from the beginning and um, we ended up raising $20 million over the first few years. So that really helped because that infrastructure was not cheap to build. I mean, we were building out the offices and the, all the online systems, the logistics systems, the whole, that whole infrastructure. Um, so mm. we raised, we got, we got some great funders, National Geographic, the World Bank, Scripps Ventures, a bunch of really great seed investors. Um, and, um, and we, we, we built it from there. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think in 99, was there a lot of impact investment going on? I'm not sure. Probably like no. there wasn't even a term, no. right? So, I didn't hear that term until later. I love it. I, you know, I'm a total social yeah. entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, finally, there's a term that defines me, you know, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't all, all this great infrastructure that's been built out in the impact community. Like it didn't exist in 1999. So it was more like going to like, the like national geographic, like, like groups that we knew were legit impact, you know, focused, uh, organizations that, yeah. that, um, but they didn't particularly, and then the world bank, I mean, we had an incredible experience with them, but the, you know, they had a, there was a long legacy of like mixed results with the world bank and in, in development work in, in the prior yeah. 20 years <laughs> when they got involved with it. So, so, but we had a phenomenal experience with them and they were what I would say, you know, those early, they were looking at developmental goals and capital returns. So, Got you it. know, it was, it, it was, I mean, the, the, the industry was forming, but it was early. Mm, interesting. So uh, with National Geographic, was that similar as well? Were they really looking at it as an investment? What was it that actually you managed as a, I think at that stage, it was pretty early on that National Ge Geographic came on, yeah. I think within the first year of operations, right? Um, yeah, yeah. How did you convince them to invest in a tiny little idea? Um, whereas obviously there was loads of other things going on 
in the whole boom. So it was crazy. That whole National Geographic deal, it was total serendipity. It was just meant to be. You know why? Because we loved like I'm, I grew up on National Geographic. It was my favorite magazine. We would get it every month and I had Nat Geo kids and I had the, the yellow, the, the classic yellow book, you know, and, um, and I would, I, I, we loved it as a family, as a, as a child, I loved it. And so it was always like, it was like, man, if we want to, we want to be authentic, we want to work with artisans, we need to connect ourselves with the group that's the most authentic in that space. And, um, and so we knew National Geographic and that was the path. And I guess, um, kind of by, um, a bit of an error. We, we, our branding, our initial branding had, um, rectangles, not yellow rectangles, but we had around our, our, our creative and we, we did an ad campaign and we had like blue rectangles and all our logo colors were in the rectangle. Right. And then, um, <laughs> we were advertising in the national geographic traveler magazine and we got a, a, a letter from their lawyers, a cease and desist. <laughs> It's a good way to start building investor relationships. <laughs> yeah, I know. We had no, it's not exactly, it's a little risky, isn't it? <laughs> and so then, then we thought, well, wait a minute, you can't, you can't have a copyright on a trademark on all just borders, you know? So, but they said, yes, actually it's a, you know, it's in our space and there's a border. And we, so I said, okay, fine. We don't want to, we will, we'll, we'll change it up. Of course. We don't want to make you guys mad at all. <laughs> and then at that same time, um, one of our investors contacted uh, the CEO of National Geographic Ventures and said, Hey, there's this really cool company that we're, that we're, um, that I'm involved with. And, um, the guy from, from the head of Nat Geo Ventures said, Oh, are you talking about Navica? I clipped one of their ads. They were copycatting our ad, but I thought it was so interesting. And I have it here pinned on my wall and I was meaning to reach out to them. <laughs> so it got us on the radar. Oh. And, um, and then it just turns out they had only invested in four companies that mm. Geo had. And, and, um, and those companies were all along the lines of um, areas that they didn't get involved with. And they classically would not get involved with um, actually, they would report on culture, report on anthropology, report on all these things, but they wouldn't actually get involved. And our company, we were actively preserving culture. Like act by giving artisans a space to make money and thrive in all these incredible crafts. I mean, we cover, there's like 75,000 live items at any given point, you know, covering so many, everything handmade, but by actively doing that, we're preserving culture. And they said they had just turned a hundred. They said, you know what? We actually want to play a role. Now we are seeing this. This is the globalization in a way that we're a little nervous about is happening and local culture is dying. And we, as National Geographic, want to play a role in preserving. And so th it just fit perfectly in their, in their trajectory. And uh, their investment in us came around a lot, the, the time of the 100th celebration when they made that, that, that organizational shift. Mm. And, it's, and it was fantastic. It's been great with them. Yeah. Amazing. So quite early on, you raised quite a lot of money, actually. You embraced kind of a for-profit business model, as far as I understand, right? Um, kind of early days. And even now, like if I speak to social entrepreneurs now um, um, that are trying to solve social and environmental issues, even today, there's loads of investors that are like, oh, yeah, that's a nice little social issue. That's cute, but you can't really make money that way. So here you are in 1999, like saying, hey, we're going to make money with this. We want to raise investment. We're going to pay you back. It's a, it's a good way to put invest your money. 
Whereas obviously solving this clear social issue and focusing on that, I just can't imagine that, um, you know, investors were like, oh yeah, we get it. Let's do it. <laughs> Describe to us a little bit how, how the investment kind of landscape was at that time and maybe how it has evolved in your view um, till today. Well, you know, it's so true. Um, and I think that, I think basically there's that, there's that root choice of um, should, should we be a for-profit or should we be a non-profit, right? There's mm -hmm. that root choice that a lot of social entrepreneurs struggle with at, at the very beginning. They're like, which, which path should I go? Um, because they're both, they're both worthy paths, right? And so I think back in the day, it was, it was definitely more challenging to go the for-profit role in our space because of exactly what you said, there, there were fewer impact investors. So it was, it was more, it made more sense to go the nonprofit profit route. But then again, we were like a 99.com was booming and we had a .com idea. And so essentially that's what helped us is that it was an online idea in a time where people were interested in online, not so much the social impact angle. And so then we were able to find investors that were mission aligned with us within the dot com, within that e-commerce because the classic retail uh venture investors they did not like our idea they were like they, they they were like no this is you need to have containers and save money on shipping and into the u.s like i'd mentioned and so it was really the dot-com investors that were excited about it and it was disruptive i mean we were disrupting we were, we came at it like rebels we were like we were like basically social impact rebels before you know it, you know, social impact existed as a category. And we're just like, you know, we are going to redo this whole, the whole import export for artisans is broken. It mm -hmm. doesn't work. We have to reinvent it. My, my, my grandmother on my Peruvian side, my abuelita, she was one of our first artisans. And it was, and I, I, I would channel her a lot. I'm like, what, like, how can we make this better for artisans? Right. And so that's, that's what we ended up doing. And, um, and that really did, that really did like being mission driven, and being clear about it with the investors. So there was no like, it was like, this is a mission-driven company at the very root. You know, artisans can charge more, customers pay less. We cut out all the middlemen. The only mm -hmm. ones, the only ones that suffer in this one are the middlemen. You know, it's like basically we're improving, improving the whole system for artisans, making it better for customers. Customers get to know who they're buying from. They get the stories. They get hand-signed pieces. It's just really, really cool as a customer too um, because you get to, Get to know who's making it. Not like broadly, like there's some some groups that have artisan goods and like, yeah, it's an artisan in Kenya and they, you know, there's no name, there's no picture, there's no, you know, like this is like really personal, you know, mm. to see who's making it and and uh hear their story and the whole thing. It's cool. Got it. Let's talk a bit about the journey since then, since the early days. Uh you said already you've survived a bunch of crises uh on the way. Um, you generated more than a hundred million in sales for the artisans, which is just amazing to hear. Um, but let's talk about some of these hard lessons or crises, moments of crises in your whole journey and the lessons that it taught you or how it may actually make you a better company in the long run, maybe, um, and share some insights from that. So what were some of the lessons you had to learn or some of the kind of real problems you had to solve along the way? I'm sure we can talk for days on that, but like yeah. some of the key ones. Well, you know, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, focus is the key thing, right? And, um, and so is opportunity. 
And often we find opportunity fall in our laps and we're like, wow, that that's pretty good. That's an interesting opportunity. And then we have to condition that by saying, but wait a minute, does that take me a little bit off my focus? Right? So it's, that's the hardest choice for a lot of entrepreneurs, especially kind of in a lean startup environment where you're testing things out and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, is that a pivot that I need to make for my company? Or is that taking me down the wrong path? And with the real nugget, the real original idea was really where I should have focused, right? And so with us, um, one of the one of the um, opportunities that came onto our plate was that um, there were a lot of companies, um, existing brick and mortar retailers, that were really interested in what we did, and they're like, "Wow, you know what? We can. We would love to buy from you wholesale, and and you guys can ship in into our stores and." Uh, many of them allowed us to have branding on the goods. So it was great marketing and, and branding for us. And, um, and so we, we spent a lot of time and I personally, because those are like, you gotta, you gotta, like we had as an advisor, Marvin Traub, uh, the former uh, chairman of Bloomingdale's, he was one of our advisors and he would open up doors and I would take some of those meetings and we had some high level um, salespeople and wholesale salespeople that would go and they would do some of these things too. And, and um, we, then we spent a lot of time, figuring out, okay, now this, this company wants to buy, you know, 3000 pieces of this. And so with the artisans, we were developing some of the infrastructure for them to produce a larger um, capacity. And you know what happened in every time there was like a financial downturn and also with brick and mortar like that. So that there was times when that would just disappear and we'd be like, okay, so what's on deck for wholesale. And we would have a awesome year, the prior year in wholesale. And then it would be, Oh, they're not, no one's buying. So now what? And then the artisans that had built out structures for producing their, 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 the buyers would say, Oh no, we did that last season. We're not interested in reordering any of that. We're like, what do you mean? It's sold. Well, no, oh, no, we kind of need fresh stuff for the stores. We want to try another country. <laughs> okay. All right. And so, and in the meantime, the customers online just kept buying, mm. buying and supporting and they would, they'd get our items and they would, they would love how we're the wrapping is incredible. It comes with a postcard and we're gift wrapping stuff. And the artisans, I mean, it's like really, really nice. It's coming from all certified from our offices. So the artisans leave the stuff in the offices. We ship the stuff. The artisans never have to ship the stuff um, out of the countries. We're doing that. And so we were like, wait a minute. We're, we're focused on this thing, but this thing is what's working is the B2C online, the customers. And so that's really, so those choices are the ones that you got to make sometimes. And then we're like, let's then, let's really focus back in our core. And, um, and that helped. That was, that, was, that was one of the key things that we needed to do is focus in on our online sales. Wow. Um, that's, that's a really good story and lesson uh, to share, definitely. Um, I think what struck, strikes me as well, compared to other big e-commerce players, um, obviously there's kind of the, the big kind of elephant in the room, Amazon and, and how they operate and how logistics heavy their operations are versus other players. Um, but your operations is logistics heavy, um, mm -hmm. because you actually have to, you know, fulfill these orders, sourcing these products from all these different countries and kind of, um, operate in countries where maybe the infrastructure is much less, uh, present to be able to fulfill these orders reliably. So how, how did you solve that problem of, obviously you had these offices locally, but then actually, um, 
fulfilling these products and making sure they get shipped? Well, you know, I think I, I really do like the Amazon model and mm. we're, we're kind of, we're structured in a very similar way. Mm. And, um, and so, and we, I mean, there is some drop shipping and stuff, kind of like Amazon has the marketplace, but really what we want to do is we're just thinking about customer first. Like how do we provide an amazing experience for the customer and yet make it amazing for the artisan, right? Mm. And so from the very beginning, we knew that there'd be communication issues and all kinds of other stuff going on if um, we expected our artisans to ship. And our artisans didn't want to ship anyways. You know, they, they wanted to make, they want to make items. They'll make items, they can dictate the prices that they want to, to get for them. Artists always controls, control, and control the prices. They can increase or decrease the prices. And on any given moment, like you go to the site, there's, all, there's tons of limited editions and you may see something that you like that day and the next day it might be more expensive. So you should have bought it the day before <laughs> or it might be lower and the artisans can, can make those changes. They don't often adjust daily. It usually is like, you know, monthly or quarterly or whatever. They'll take a look, but the prices do move and the artisans control that. Um, and so what we want to do is like, what's the best experience for the customer? Um, and how can we reduce all the friction with, with international duties and tariffs and shipping things in and, um, and make it so that someone can buy a gift because we're a major source for gifts. Like, so that's, that's become one of our major you know, growth areas is that people love buying our items and then they're like, well, let me, let me give um, gifts using Novica um, because they're, they come so beautifully packaged and I, they're certifying everything. I know that the, everything is great quality and, um, and all of the extra stuff, the, the gift wrap and the artisan cards and all this other stuff, the postcards that come signed. So, so people like to buy it as gifts, but imagine if you're buying a gift and then you're receiving it, the person that's receiving the gift and they're charged the import duty, you know, so that would not, that would not be good. So we had to solve for all of that stuff. And so we, we, uh, we figured out, a basically built out a global infrastructure around air freight consolidations and moving it. So, so you don't even see the customer doesn't see any of that. The customer, you go and you, you get on our site and you, you place an order and you can choose the fastest um, shipment, which is a door-to-door -door shipment or a, a two to three week shipment, which is usually like free or 399 or very inexpensive. And that one is the one those are coming in consolidated and we're doing all kinds of fancy stuff behind the scenes um, on that. Yeah. But that was part, that's part of the IP and the infrastructure that we built out. Amazing. And what was your benchmark for that? You mentioned Amazon, um, but obviously when you started out, Amazon was around for a few years. Was it kind of the benchmark from the beginning or like how did, did you have to come up with all that by yourself how, how did you actually come about these um these ideas well yeah they were and, and really they weren't so um they were they weren't so broadly focused back then either when they when we first started they were mostly mostly books you know it was mostly that um and they were br you know branching into other other areas and no they've been that's fantastic amazon is a they, that is our benchmark i mean we want to be the amazon in handcrafted so that's that really is our benchmark. I think they do a phenomenal job um, thinking about customers. I think we do an even better job thinking about customers because I've had bad experiences with Amazon where you don't know who, you can't talk to people. It's like, you know, you know how it is. It's like, you know, so we, we tend to, our customer service, all of that stuff, we go above and beyond. We always want to make the customer happy. Um, and we want to have that personal relationship with the customers when possible too. Um, and so, so, but they are the benchmark. They are fantastic. Um, back then there weren't any, there weren't any, any great companies doing it well online. 
You know, they there weren't, there really weren't. And I think I think Jeff Bezos was a, was a visionary in that mm-hmm. area, where he was just so customer centric, so customer focused, and um, basically you get that you get it right for the customer, and you get it right. Period. And so that that really has been influential for us is get it right for the customer. And in many ways, we see the artisan as a customer too. We we're a service provider for our artisans too. We want we want the system to be the artisan to feel like a king or queen. And artisans in our countries, they are not treated well in many, many, um, by many people. In many countries that we're in, our artisans are second-class citizens. They are not respected. There's not dignity in the incredible stuff that they do. And that's what really why I really get emotional when I see how badly a lot of our artisans are treated. And we wanted to change that, too. We wanted to provide a safe space where the artisan is king and queen you know, she comes into our office and she knows she can get microcredit through us, 0% interest microcredit, which we've partnered with Kiva on that. It's great. We're a non-traditional MFI so that artisans can get microcredit. They get design advice if they want it. If they don't, then they don't, you know, they're not going to, it's not going to be, you know, like pushed onto them. We want them to come up with their own creative solutions. We want the pieces to be their pieces, right? And so, so there's this whole focus on the artisan. And that's also been very very kind of formative for our company, artisan focus, customer focus. And we actually transitioned that into a whole brand thing, which is like happy artisans, happy customers and spreading global happiness. And we just simplified it, you know, to that. Love it. Love it really. Um, Wow. That's uh, such an interesting journey and kind of really coming up with these models and putting artisans first. I'd be curious to understand how you've managed to keep that focus on the artisans, right? Because if, let's say, you were going to optimize solely for profit, I'm sure you would have taken decisions that wouldn't always be the best for the artisans, right? So at the same time, you are a for-profit company and your job is to be profitable, right? Um, So how do you kind of manage that and how have you set up the company in a way that you're kind of mission driven um but also kind of profitable well you know we we have the real-time tracker for funds to artisans and that's the one that you quoted and and it's like 111 million um as of this morning i think something around that and um and it's our offices each of the offices have that and that's actual funds to artisans so -hmm. that's not like our sales or anything that's the funds that are to the artisans so it's um it's, it's a real pure tracking mechanism that we have. And we ended up incorporating that into our internal reporting. So basically, what do we do to increase the amount going to artisans, right? And as long as we're tracking that, then everything else is great, you know, because the sales are on top of that. Everything's on top of that, right? But if we can, if we can manage around that metric um, and, and how do we make that, that 111 million, how do we turn that into a billion? You know, like Kiva hit their their billion in loans um, made to people. We want to hit the billion in funds sent to artisans, you know. And so we're like, how do we amplify the mission? Uh, you know, we really ask people to spread the word. You know, that's the best way that, I mean, we do all kinds of marketing, but nothing's better than when someone tells someone about us, you know, and um, and buy gift certificates and gift cards on the site. It's a great way to spread the word, that kind of thing. Um, but really getting people to, to spread the word and for us to amplify our impact. But yeah, no, I think that, I think that, um, and this is something that B Corps, um, I was reading cause we're, we're going through that process and, um, and, and we, I think it's really cool that it's like what impact metric 
what impact metric can you actually incorporate into your, you know, your board of directors reports, your, um, your employee reviews, your like, what, how do like, what, what's that metric? And if you can figure out a way, like for us, it's because it's core to the business funds, to artisans, but if you can figure out a way as a social entrepreneur, one of the listeners out there, if you figure out what's that metric and I, and I bring that into my general reporting, then it really helps you in terms of streamlining impact. Let's talk about your business model and how it aligns with the interests of the artisans as well, right? So if you look at uh, obviously the big platforms out there, which um, maybe your artisans are not usually on, but that provide platforms for small businesses to sell products, things like eBay, Etsy, and Amazon um, Marketplace um, that always take a cut, basically. Is that your model as well? And kind of uh, how does your business model work? And then uh, how do you align incentives with your artisans? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so no, so we we're similar in that, you know, that we're, we see ourselves as a marketplace. Um, but we're probably closer to Amazon than some of the other ones that you mentioned. And, um, and what from the very beginning, the way that we set it up is um, the artisans get to just basically manage their pricing, right? And it's completely transparent because they'll put their price and they see what the, the corresponding retail price is, right? And it depends on the category, the duties, all these other elements, what the final retail price is. But if the artisan lowers the price, the retail price comes down. It basically is like it's like a, a scale, right? And yeah. so it's, it's totally transparent for them. They're like, well, okay, you know, um, if I, if I want to um, get it under this price of retail, I got to go under this price with my, with my artist price. But they manage, yeah. they, they're in control of that. And that really from the very beginning you know, no contracts, you know, um, we don't lock them into anything. It's a total fair system for artists. Basically they get access to the micro credit at 0% interest. They get to, um, manage their pricing. Um, so it's really a, really a, a system set up for the artist. And, um, and that basically, that's how it works. We just, we say, look, you, you manage your pricing and, um, and then, and, uh, and, and focus on, on making new items and new items that are, you can see what's selling. So focus on making new items based on the ones that are you're succeeding with. And then every month, try something artistically crazy. You know, try something just out of left field. You know, just try something, put it out there, make it, make something new. We're not like the kind of, like a lot of traditional retailer, like just do the same thing over and over again. And then if they'll have some designer send some design to the artisan, like, oh, our designer came up with this. Can you make this? And then they're just producing things. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, we want the artist to, be inspired by what they've sold, but also any new ideas, try it out. Cause they can put up one, two or three that, you know, and that's why you'll go on site as a customer. You'll see, there's a lot of stuff that says limited quantities, one available, you put it in your cart and it's no longer available for anyone else, you know? So, so there, there's a lot of, of experiment, ex, like experimental products and that's really cool. Wow. So quite truly unique, I guess that connects with the gift. Uh, focus as well that you know people really get some unique uh, gifts that are not mass produced really yeah. right yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely yeah amazing um i love i love the idea of letting artisans set the prices exclusively um because i think there could be easily a model where you negotiate with the artisans and you're probably going to be in a stronger negotiating positions than them uh, leading them to kind of make choices that may not be great for them in the long run or uh, may actually yeah not be great right so i think it's a really important part of your model that artisans choose the prices 
and you take things from there. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, what you, what you said just now is actually like, that's the system that we are trying to change because the system that exists, the traditional system is one where the um, artisan in a remote area is usually serviced by some middleman, some local distributor selling to then a national distributor selling then to an international distributor or to, through a gift show or something like that. Then the retailer buys it. There's a long, there's a long list and the artist has no leverage. Mm. Like we're talking no leverage. And so like, so if that local distributor says, you know what, I'm going to use some other artist, or, you know what, you sell this to me for $5, even though the price is 10, sell it to me for $5, you know, no, there's no negotiating, not $6, it's $5. The artist has to basically do it or lose the order. And sometimes losing the order means how are they going to feed their family? Mm. You know, so there is no leverage in the traditional system, you know, for the artisans. Yeah. And, and, then, and then if they, if they say, oh, you know what, I'm going to hold my price, then that local distributor is like, oh, let me go, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll work with some other artist because there's plenty of supply. I mean, the artisan yeah. sector is in the developing world, the second biggest employer, you know, after agriculture. So there's plenty of artisans. There's not a lot of leverage. So we wanted to completely change that and say, you know what, you're in control. <laughs> and so, and it's your name, you know, your stuff, you make the best quality because that customer is going to leave a review or buy from you again. It's you're in control. And, you know, if you want to give that discount, you give that discount, you know? Mm. So that's really how we um, switched it. And there was plenty of margin in there because you're cutting out so many middlemen. So it's like, okay, artisans can increase the price. Um, and it doesn't, the customer can actually get a better price than, you know, than, than in boutiques in the traditional, some of the traditional um, venues. Got it. Um, I've got one more question around your model and maybe trying to extract some insights for social entrepreneurs that are trying to solve similarly complex problems. I think like the way you describe it and the way your platform runs, it's, although you started in a dot-com boom, it's not a straightforward dot-com, you know, website and e-commerce. We just take a commission and sit in our offices in Silicon Valley and kind of everything else is kind of outsourced and we don't have to worry about it. You worry about, you know, having these offices in these countries. You worry about the packaging, you're sending the products, the whole logistics, all that you are controlling so that you can provide a great customer experience um, for the people buying the products, they feel like whatever I order on that platform, it will arrive, uh, you know, my money won't be gone and then I'll have to kind of chase it up. Uh, it will arrive in a nice packaging, you know, um, uh, the artisans are like making quality products and not just some random people. But that means for you as an entrepreneur, a massive headache potentially, right? Especially if you think about somebody that's starting out uh, with with maybe a similar concept in terms of providing a great customer experience in a sector where that's so kind of fragmented with like all these individual artisans all over the world. And I'm just wondering, how do you make that work without actually spending every single 
dollar of your profits on making that work, right? Because it's, first of all, I think I imagine you, you got to coach a lot of the artisans as well and kind of make sure they understand what they got to do to have, provide this great customer experience and kind of create products that are really attractive. So that seems very high touch. Then you have to do all these logistics, all that. So, um, I know it's a broad topic, but I'd love to extract some insights for you from the lessons you've learned on being this really high touch uh, business uh, for other entrepreneurs to kind of learn from uh, if if they're trying to do something similar. Oh, that I mean that is such a good question and really um, a, a challenging question to answer. It really is. And you know, um, actually, a visual came to me when you were talking about investors doing due diligence. When one of our investor groups, they were they were uh, they were coming in and 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 they said, "Oh, we want to we want to do some due diligence." And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Where where you want to go? And they're like, oh, well, we want to go to this and this and this country. I'm like, okay, cool. That's great. So who on your team is used to about 110 degree, like high humidity? Because we're going to be going into areas where you better be ready for that. And I don't want to be worried about, about you guys. And so, because most of our team, we're, team, we've lived in the tropics. We just like no humidity and we'd love it. I, I love, I love the heat, you know? And so anyway, uh, those, those, uh, those investors had a lot of fun. Um, but we're, we're, we're sweating a lot during their due diligence and they're like, wow, that was one of the most fun, but also most trying, you know, kind of like, as you say, it's high touch and, and there's a lot of action that happens where it's not, um, people aren't in air conditioning, um, virtual, you know, like all, all online and just, that's all, there is yeah. a lot of touch. And so I think that I basically think that the more, the pure, the business, the, the less friction, the less touch, the better. Hmm. So, and that would be my advice for your, for your entrepreneurs. It would be, which are the elements that because of either the mission or what you're doing, you need to have a touch. Mm. Like basically like touch for touch's sake that we're always figuring out ways to reduce it. Like, how do we, how do we remove that friction? How do we, how do we make it easier? How do we, can we put this online? Can we put this in a report? Can we automate this? You know, cause it's basically the enemy of efficiency. It really is. It's hard to have, and and it's scalability too. It is really hard to scale a high touch business. It really is. So, like, how do you do it? Amazon is incredible about it. It's a high touch business that has reduced all the frictions in the infrastructure. I mean, it's amazing. And so, what? How do we? How do we look at that? And how can so? That's my advice. Is is really. Um, First of all, if there is touch, then you got to love that touch, right? You got to be like, okay, I want to be in the community doing this. And, and we do love that part of it. I mean, that's the part that gives everybody like their, their mission juice. You know, it's like, whoa, okay. When we're doing artisan rallies, you know, in Peru and there's a hundred artisans coming and we're pumping them up about the next, you know, thing that we're about to do. I mean, that is, I love that, you know, so you got to love the touch. Um, but, um, but also, um, reduce it as much as possible or else how you, how are you going to scale? So that's, it's, it's a, that's why that question is so hard because it's, um, you know, if you do have a pure business, that is a better business. It really mm -hmm. is. It's a pure yeah. social business that has very little touch and you can scale it. That is a great business. Mm. But yeah. at the same time, you're taking a conscious decision to be able to provide this great customer experience, not to just leave, uh, everything, but the e-commerce, uh, to others, right? Like, I think that could yeah. be a decision, but yeah. then again, like yeah. I may order the order one may never arrive because the logistics aren't sorted out. Right. So I think you're yeah. focusing on the key issues. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, 
one thing I'm curious about before we get to the final question, um, because I think Novica is truly a family business, right? Like you already mentioned it earlier. Um, you launched Novica with your mother-in-law, uh, which is super interesting. And your brother, I think, is involved brother, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also other parts of the family, the multiple friend, generations yeah. of grandparents yeah. <laughs> have been involved right. in this. So... Um, I don't know if there's a lesson to be shared, but I'd love to learn a little bit more um, how this actually came about and uh, how do you, how does it make you strong? But what's maybe also the challenge with that setup where uh, people from your personal life are involved in the business? Well, you know, for me, for me, um, I always, I think as a kid, even dreamed of, um, of when I was an adult, you know, having, something where I could have tons of friends around me, <laughs> you know? And so I could, I really was so nervous about is my future one where I'm going to be going to an office with people that don't really like me. And, and I'm just doing some work for some boss and, you know, and, and there's no fulfillment in that. Um, and I, that was a scary vision of the future and the visions of the future where I would get most excited would be when I'm surrounded by people that I love and that I love being with and that we're excited to work together and, and um and everyone's working on a common goal and um and even better if that common goal is like makes the world a better place like what more can you ask for in life you know it's just that that's that's really at the root of like everyone that's listening to this that's thinking about how to have business with purpose you're onto it i mean this is it this is like that it was so fulfilling so um so i really encourage you to do that to figure out how to do, how to do that and um and in our case um one thing with partners, I think you have to be risk aligned. That's why I, I hear a lot of people when they're having like partner like issues and stuff. I'm like, okay, well, let's just break this down a little bit. Why are you guys not seeing eye to eye? And it might be because one person's like a risk taker and the other one is really nervous about all those risks. I'm lucky that a lot of the people that we've had in the company that are all involved, they're all risk takers. You know, they're there. We've had times where we've had to be really lean and, um, and we've had to do that and it, and it hasn't created a lot of fights or issues instead it's we've been pumped up we hunker down and we and we make it happen and i think that so so definitely make sure if you're getting partners that you're risk aligned or else they, that that can be disastrous and yeah family i mean let's say things blow up and then you have to see them around the 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 uh the holiday table or whatever you know down the road and it's all it's awkward you know there's that could happen to people and so think twice about, you know, who you get involved, but, um, also make it fun, you know? So if you, if you like working with someone, I mean, that's why, you know, like, like uh, I've got a, like a lot of my close friends are involved with a company and we just like our daily, we just, it, it makes it that much more fun and fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely get that sense that you have so much fun and fulfillment on doing what you do. I mean, you wouldn't have stuck around so long. Uh, you've been doing this for more than 20 years, I think, uh, uh, in a world where maybe a lot of startup founders are out there, uh, trying to exit and, you know, do the next thing, uh, it's really amazing to see you really committed in the long run. Um, on that question, on that note, uh, one last question, if you think about the world in 10 years time, um, how does the world look like in 10 years if Novica continues to succeed and if you're fulfilling your mission? Oh, wow. What a question. You know, 
I think that's very similar to what I was just talking about, where the the vision of the future as a child, like what was my my future going to be like one working in the office, you know, like with bosses that didn't like me or whatever, or, or one where we're change, helping change the world. And I think there's two visions of the future that I've got. And one of them is a very scary, you know, mass produced. Everything is made cheaper and cheaper. Big factories. There's the work that goes into the design aspect, but the actual manufacturing and process is all um, automated. And it's a fast fashion, cheap fashion, like people just assembly line buying stuff. Um, and, um, and, that's, and that's one where artists don't have a voice. There's less room for art, for culture, for expression. And that's one future. And in that future, so much of the developing world, like our artisans and stuff, they, they suffer in that future. They're cut out basically. And so, and then I see a future that's a very bright future where, where, where people start rejecting this whole uh, cookie cutter, mass produced, fast fashion. Let me get this cheap thing, cheap piece of apparel that I'm going to use a few times and it's going to be no good. Like it's one where, where quality is, is honored the time to create a piece is honored. And we go back to thinking like the romanticizing of the middle ages where there's guilds and there's artisans and there's makers and, and they're keeping tradition and culture alive because as we, as we all get networked and the whole, you know, that all happens, there is so much of a, of a um, reduction in individual culture, language, um, you know, traditions. And so I think that's part of what the role that we want to play is, is keeping those traditions alive around the world, um, celebrating the master women and men that make these items, like the time-honored techniques, and having a place for if you've got talent and you work on it and you live um, in a remote area, you can succeed and you can have customers all over the world that not only um, buy your items, but that read about them want to know more about it, leave you incredible reviews. You guys connect, you just feel this bond across international um, boundaries. And we kind of take away some of this, um, the nationalism, this like rabid nationalism. That, and it's like, we're all part of the world together. We all can have our individual countries and, and geographic locations within this world, but we're all, we're all citizens of the world. And, and let's celebrate that and, and make the world a, a happier, smaller place where, where we can, you know, all thrive. That would be my great vision of the future. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, Roberto, for joining me on Impact Hustlers. Uh, it's been really inspirational listening to you and your journey. And I think there's so many nuggets of insight that people can learn from. So thanks very much for taking the time and joining us. Oh, thanks so much for providing this platform. And this whole community that you have is amazing, Michael. So congrats to you. And, and thanks so much. Thank you. All right, I just pressed stopped. Uh, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.